Thank you, uh, worship team. That was terrific. So encouraged to, to be here with you this morning uh, and worship the Lord with you. If you are a guest with us, as Brandon said, we're, uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you have uh, ventured in. We know it can be challenging if you don't know kind of uh, what to expect or, or where to go or where to drop your kids off or when to stand, when to sit. And so uh, we understand it's a challenge uh, to do that sometimes and go into a new environment and and we're glad that you're, you're with us this morning. We hope that you feel warmly received. And if you are a guest with us, I'd love to meet you at the end of the service. If you would, uh, I'll be up front if you want to come down, I'd love to, to meet you. We do have two, uh, I guess I can say, very special guests this morning um, who won't be guests for very long. Uh, tomorrow marks the first day on staff for Justin Crisp, who is our new um, Director of Technology and Communications. And Justin and April are here. Why don't you guys stand and let us uh, welcome you. Why don't we uh, welcome them with some... Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, Justin will be over our uh, sound, video, lighting, uh, live stream, uh, communications, and so on, so that you uh, will know what we're doing, uh, why we're doing it, and then how you can be a part of what we're doing. And speaking of being a part of what we're doing, we have um, a members meeting next Sunday, and we're going we're gonna to bring in, welcome in some 18 to 20 uh, new members, which is exciting, folks who are uniting with us in membership and becoming part of our uh, faith family. We're also going to approve the 2019-2020 uh, the annual budget, and uh, that's, we've put a lot of work and time and prayer into that as elders, and Pastor Adam has done a wonderful job putting everything in a very clear uh, way that can be understood. Um, if you want to look at that, you can see the QR code, which is in your bulletin. You can use your phone, which will take you right to the, uh, the, the, the page on our website. And then if you have questions about that, today, after this service, in the Capshaw Commons, which is out the doors to your left, uh, in a building right across, uh, in the same, kind of across the parking lot, we're going to have a Q&A if you're interested uh, in that. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that um, if you have questions. Let's pray. We'll continue to worship as we uh, open the word together. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your glorious grace. And we do thank you that when we were lost, when we were dead, when we were estranged, when we were aliens, when we had no hope, no foundation, Lord, you came to us. You overwhelmed us with your love and your mercy, the same mercy we just sang about. And you made us alive in Christ. You gave us the gift of faith. You enabled us to, to, to trust in you and to depend on you and to love you. And Father, you made us your very own sons and daughters. We praise you for that, Lord. We do know, as we have sung about together this morning, that we have nothing that we should bring to you that makes us worthy of your acceptance. But Christ, who was perfectly obedient for us, who lived and died for us, was raised again, Lord, for our justification, Lord. That's why we know we can come to you and worship you and pray to you. And Father, we pray that you would reassure us of your love. We pray that you would encourage us in the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel this morning and you would minister to us uh, through your spirit and by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, turn me to John uh, chapter 8. We're going to be going through uh, verses 12 through 30 this morning. It is a large section, so uh, there's a lot to cover. 
Uh, several years ago, I developed a friendship with a guy who was a senior pastor who was roughly my age. And this is a guy who, whose son uh, went on American Idol uh, and uh, did so well that he made it all the way to the top nine. He was only 15 years old when he did it. This is season uh, 14, which was back in 2015. And so this guy goes on American Idol and he kind of, you know, continues to, to survive all of the cuts and he's doing well. And uh, Jennifer Lopez is praising him for his, uh, his energy and his ability and so on. And, uh, and then after all of that, so he didn't make it, he wasn't the American Idol, he made it to the top nine, but after he was cut, um, he got a phone call from some uh, big wigs in New York, some big musical uh, producers, and they said, hey, we would like to meet with you. We're interested in putting together a, a boy band, a new boy band. We'd love to know if you would consider that. And so it wasn't exactly what he was thinking of, but he decided to uh, follow through on this. So he went to Manhattan, met with uh, some music uh, producers, and ended up being part of, becoming part of this new boy band called Why Don't We? Some of you, if you have teenage daughters, maybe you, you know of this, maybe it's playing uh, in your house. Um, the band has done very well. They've been on a number of late night shows, Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, they were on the MTV Music Awards and so on. And in fact, their, their, their latest single has been viewed on YouTube 49 million times. So, this is, uh, so they're, they're doing okay. Well, my friend, the, the pastor, he decided that, because his son was only 15, that he would actually resign from pastoral ministry. He had been at a church in Portland, Oregon for some 20 years and actually go and manage uh, his, son, you know, his son's career. He didn't want his son to get kind of swallowed up in uh, the entertainment industry and so decided he was going to do that. Well, um, my friend and his wife were in uh, Los Angeles and they wanted to have lunch with us. And so we drove downtown had lunch on the 42nd floor of this big building in L.A. and, and, and heard their story. And then the guy said to me, uh, in the middle of that conversation, somewhere in the conversation, he said, you know, he said, I think you'd be perfect, actually, to, to succeed me as the pastor of this church when I leave. I said, well, it's, it's very kind of you, and I appreciate your confidence in me, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I love the people that I'm serving, and, and I know... That, you know, I would really only do this if, if God would, would be moving in that way. And I said, but I am willing to pray about it. He said, okay, well, if you'll pray about it, that'd be great. He said, also, would you mind uh, talking with my executive pastor just to get, get a sense of where we are as a church? I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that. So we set up a time. I called the executive pastor, and I don't know how much you know about the weather in Portland, uh, but it's not great. You know, it's not great at all. And so I get on the phone with this executive pastor, and first thing he says to me, he says, I, th I think I'm depressed. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, I I I'm, I'm, I'm half a man. I'm half the man that I used to be. I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, it's been, we've had 84 straight days of rain, darkness, cloudiness. There's, well, we haven't seen the sun in almost three months. And he said, I, I feel like I'm just a walking zombie. It really ended up to be less about the church and more of a counseling session uh, for this guy. Um, but, uh, you know, he said, I, I just, it's like, I don't know how to function. I mean, I'm miserable. I look out, it's gray, it's dark all the time. Um, I didn't end up going to that church, but I, I did learn something in that, call, that phone conversation. That was that man was not created to live in darkness. We were not made to live in darkness. We were actually made to live in the light. There are many benefits of light. Light brings life, you know, things can't survive if, they're not, if they don't receive light. There would be no life on earth if not for the warmth and the power 
and the glow of the sun. Everything would die. Light brings healing. Light provides energy. Light brings joy. There's, there's a reason that so many people in, in, in parts in Alaska go through a severe depression in the winter when the sun is only out for just a few short hours per day. Light offers safety. As human beings, we need light on so many levels. It's actually uh, essential for our existence. So with that in mind, we move into this metaphor that Jesus uses to describe himself. John chapter 8. Let me start by reading verses 12 through 20. The word of the Lord reads this way. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. Jesus says, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So remember, we're on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, right? And this is the this is this week-long celebration, as we've talked about before, where the people of Israel, they descend upon Jerusalem, and they remember the faithfulness of God who delivered them through their travels in the desert. So they, they, they camp out in tents, they live in these movable structures as a way to remind themselves of their journey in the wilderness, and they celebrate the way that God had provided. Well, how did God provide for them in the desert? Well, by three ways, mainly. One, he provided for them by bread. Of course, they're traveling around in the desert. There's no, they don't have any refrigerators. There's nothing to actually preserve their food. And so they had a very limited supply for all of these people. And what God did is he provided bread for them. Every morning they would wake up and there was manna, bread from heaven. And it was enough to sustain them. They got tired of it after a while, but it was enough. It actually provided for them. It, it allowed them to, to survive. So he provided, first of all, by bread. How else? By water. You know what deserts are known for? They're known for being dry. And so they're out, and they're, you know, all these people marching along, and, and in some ways going in circles. And of course, they need water to survive. They need water to actually maintain. And so God provides for them water. He, he makes water to flow from the rock for his people to drink. Well, how's the third? what's the third way that God provided for his people? It was by light. When the Israelites left Egypt, they saw in the sky this cloud, and the cloud actually guided them. It showed them the way they were to go, and it shielded them from the sun. And then when it became dark, the cloud actually appeared as a pillar of fire. God led his people through the darkness by a pillar of fire, which illuminated their path and, and kept them moving towards safety. And the, the ancient Near Eastern context, there were craggy cliffs, and there were steep drop-offs, 
and there were all kinds of winding paths. It was a very dangerous way to go. Without the light to guide them, especially in the dark, they would never have made it. But again, God led them by way of this fire. And then during the Feast of Booze, which again, we're, we're right at the tail end of it, as the people celebrate God's kindness and faithfulness, they would sing and they would dance and, and they would celebrate with great joy and praise God for giving them these specific things, bread and water and light. For example, at the end of the first day of the feast, there was this ceremonial lighting of the golden candlestick. And it was, there were these menorahs or these gigantic candelabras that had bowls in them. And the priest would, you can only be reached by ladder, the priest would go up and he would take a torch and he would light the bowls and then the light would emanate throughout the temple and even it would bounce off the yellow limestone walls of Jerusalem and it would fill the city. And people would take their torches and they would march along and they would sing and the light would actually flood the city. You could see the light across in the distance. And it was the symbol of light that God provided again, just like he, he provided the bread and water. Well, Bread, water, and light. You see where this is going, don't you? Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, all of those temporal provisions, all the ways that God provided, that provided just sort of a lasting sustenance, Jesus says, I actually am the fulfillment of those. Those things were meant to, to point to a much more satisfying and lasting provision. And Jesus says, that is, I am the one, that's me. Talk about bread, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He's the true manna. Then in chapter 7, Jesus says that he is the rock from which living water will flow. He is living water, the kind of, of water that, that quenches a person's deepest thirst. Actually, they're longing for God. And then here Jesus says he is not just the bread and the water, but he's actually the light, the sort of light that wouldn't just light up a city, but that would light up the whole world. Now, we looked at those first two metaphors, you know, in the past few weeks, and this morning we want to look at what does it mean when Jesus says he is the light of the world? It means a lot of things, uh, but in this passage, let me explain it in sort of one point, one definition that has uh, sort of uh, three different uh, facets to it. Here's what Jesus means. This is our single point this morning, what Jesus means by the light of the world in John 8. Jesus guides us into truth in a world of false promises, twisted measurements, and religious requirements. This is what he's saying. He says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, what do we say that light does? One of the things that light does is it actually guides. It illuminates our path. Without the light, we get lost. Without the light, we venture off into trouble. Without the light, we find that we are in a really bad way. It's kind of hard now in the 21st century to actually experience total darkness, you know, the kind where you, you just can't see anything. I've, I've had that. I can remember a few times uh, experiencing this sort of darkness where uh, you can't even see the hand in front of your face. One was, uh, one was actually at the worst possible time, the worst imaginable time. Uh, I was traveling in, in some rural villages in South Africa doing some preaching and teaching and leadership development, and, um, and then my host family decided that, you know, I, this, is my, this was my first trip to South Africa. They thought, you've come all this way. We want to take you to a game drive. 
So a game drive, there, there are a couple of game parks in, in South Africa, a few really, really big when they're like thousands and thousands of hectares or, or acres. And uh, we went to this one uh, with this, with, I went to one with this host family and we decided that you know, for the big five, things like, you can see the big five, there are like lion and rhinos and elephants and so on. And um, we decided that we would spend the night inside the park. There was a little area inside the park. When I say little, it was probably uh, maybe three or four uh, hectares or acres. And it was inside the park, but it was surrounded by these tall fences. And so we, we, we had dinner, and then we went into that area. We walked over to our chalets when it got dark where we were going to stay. And, um, and I thought, well, this is where we're all going to be staying. We kind of walk up to this, this uh, bungalow. And uh, I was ready to retire for the evening, and the host family said, no, th th these are actually for families. Um, because you're by yourself, you're staying over there. Well, I looked out into the darkness, and I didn't see anything. So I said, well, what's, where do you mean over there? And they said, well, you just walk straight for about 50 yards, and you'll practically run into it. It's a little, small, self-standing structure. I said, but I can't see anything. I can't walk. If I walk, I can't see anything. They said, Here, here's our flashlight. And they said, look, don't worry about the animals. This is surrounded by this 40-foot uh, uh, fence, which keeps out all the predatory animals except the baboons. And then they said, they're, they're vicious. And then they said, good night. So wait a second, that, that's, that, that doesn't really help me. I said, well, what, what about the baboons? They said, well, here's the thing. Just don't agitate them. Of course, that sparked a lot of questions too. Like what, what, what is it that's going to agitate a baboon? I mean, isn't a tall, pale, bald dude in a jungle? That's agitating enough, isn't it? So I, I, I thought, you know, what, what am I going to do here? They said, look, just walk straight ahead. Here's our flashlight. You'll be fine. And so... You know, I, I got the flashlight, and I, I walked straight ahead, and uh, rather briskly, and then I came to my place, and I got inside, and I was safe, but I realized that if I hadn't had that little bit of light, I would have been in a horrible, horrible position. Without it, I would have been in total darkness, probably end up a baboon's hors d'oeuvre or something. I knew that I needed that light. Without the light, I would have ventured off into definite peril. Well, Jesus says that anyone who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, if you follow me, you won't be stumbling around. You won't be venturing off, at least not uh, permanently. And, and, and broader, he says, you will not fall into the endless ideologies and false claims of the world. What does darkness signify in the scriptures? Well, certainly it signifies everything uh, that is opposed to God. But no one writes more about darkness in the scriptures than John, the same John who, wrote, who writes the three epistles later. And in that, darkness tends to represent, most specifically, chaos, confusion, spiritual disorder, spiritual lostness. As the ancient Israelites longed for a redeemer some 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah told them of a time when their confusion and their chaos would end. He writes in Isaiah 9, 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Now, why would he say such a thing? Why would he offer this sort of promise? What was he talking about? He was prophesying about the Redeemer. Later in that same oracle, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
So the darkness that Isaiah was talking about is the same darkness that John is talking about in his gospel, and that is spiritual lostness, spiritual chaos, spiritual blindness. He's talking about the, the vacuous nature of the world's way of thinking. The world's way of thinking as it relates to happiness, certainly that's part of it. That's what I mean by false promises in our first point. But more importantly, the world's way of thinking as it, result, as it relates to spiritual salvation. Jesus says, if you walk in the light, and I am the light, you will not venture into the darkness. You will not buy into the world's way of salvation. Now, the world's way of salvation, really every religion of the world, says if you are to be right with God, you have to earn it. You have to earn it. But Jesus comes along and says, if you are to be right with God, what you must actually do, we're going to see this in the second part of this section, what you actually must do is believe on me. What Jesus offers is an acceptance apart from not rooted in our performance. Jesus claims to be the light that leads to life. But that's such a huge claim. He doesn't say that I am a light. He doesn't say, I'm going to show you a good way. He says, I am the light of the world. It's exclusive and it's inclusive. It's exclusive in the sense that he says, I am the light. There is no other light. There is no other one who will show you the path, who will lead you to God. But it's inclusive in that he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Well, how do you think the hardworking religious folks would receive this? Not very well. And this is not the first time he's made such audacious claims, nor will it be the last. By this time, people are saying, who does this guy think he is? I mean, who says things like this? The Pharisees say to Jesus, you are bearing witness to yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. Perhaps better translated, your testimony is not valid. You know the law, and the law says that in order for a testimony to be received, it must be corroborated. Two people must bear witness. Kind of like, seems really much like a courtroom. And the religious leaders are judging Jesus and they say to him, call your first witness. And Jesus says, my first witness is me. They say, yeah, we know you've already said that. But that doesn't count. And then he says, my next witness is my father. But nobody can see the father. So they say, well, who's your father? It's not terribly helpful to them. But Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You judge by the flesh. You judge according to human appearance. You judge by what you can see. But I judge according to what is unseen. The whole passage, by the way, is about who judges whom. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. It's kind of confusing. Jesus says, I don't judge anyone. But if I do judge someone, my judgment will be true because the Father judges with me. Essentially, what Jesus says is, I will, he's not saying I will never judge anyone. What he's saying is, I don't judge like you do. I don't judge the way you do. And that's really the point. 
along with Jesus reiterating his, his deity, his unique relationship with the Father, Jesus makes it very clear that he doesn't judge the way the world does. He doesn't even judge the way religious people do. Uh, one very well-respected New Testament scholar, Don Carson, writes this, Jesus means, rather, that he does not judge anyone at all the way his opponents do, i.e., in other words, he does not appeal to fleshly criteria and accordingly mark people up or down. That's how the world may judge. That's how religion may judge. But Jesus says, I don't judge the way you judge. There's a great scene in the Old Testament where the prophet Samuel is sent to to really find Saul, the king's successor. And so he goes to Jesse, and the Lord has told him to go to Jesse. He's going to find the next king of Israel uh, as one of Jesse's sons. And so Jesse uh, naturally parades his sons out, and his sons were big, strong, muscular boys. They were warriors. So he parades them out, and, and, and here's Samuel looking at them, and I'm sure Jesse's trying to do a little bit of selling, right? I mean, now look at this one. Bring, a, bring Abinadab over here. Bring Abinadab. You notice the V? Look at his, the broad shoulders, the narrow waist. Surely this is the guy, right? Surely it's Abinadab. No, it's not him. Jesse's, I mean, Samuel's looking through. No, not that one, not that one, not that one. So, so Samuel says, is this it? Is this all you got? And Jesse says, well, I did have one other boy, he's, but he's not like the rest of my boys. He's out with the sheep. I mean, he's... He's more likely to be in GQ than, than field and stream. So I don't know that he's really the one you want to look at. No, br bring him in. And so, of course, Jesse appoints David, anoints him uh, as king. And then we see in that passage this, this powerful statement, the Lord doesn't see like man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And every time I've ever heard that preached or presented, it's always pre presented as something that's encouraging. And it is on some level encouraging, isn't it? But it's also terrifying because the Lord doesn't judge by outward appearance. The Lord doesn't judge by a person's activity. The Lord doesn't judge by the way a person behaves. He judges in a very different way. It's not on outward behavior that God judges. God actually sees at the heart level. Because we can actually hide a lot of stuff, can't we, by outward behavior. We can, as we talked about last week, it's the whole Facebook life. We can pretend that everything is wonderful, everything is amazing, everything is great. We can hide a lot. Just by smiling sometimes, we can hide a lot. But God sees through all of that. And this is what Jesus says about himself. Jesus doesn't judge by outward appearance, by fleshly criteria. What matters most to Jesus is what's in the heart. And what does Jesus want to see in the heart? It's not simply sincerity. It's not the heart of a champion. It's not some sort of steely resolve. It's not uh, resilience. It's not the, the, the resolve of someone says, I can do this. I can do this. But the brokenness of someone who says, I can't. I can't do this. The trust of someone who says, Jesus, I believe that you, you lived and you died and you were raised from me. And that's all I have. That's all I can cling to. Jesus judges by a very different criteria. What Jesus judges, he goes to the heart, and what does he have to see? What does he want to see? It's faith. Trust in him. 
belief in him. We've seen this over and over in his sermons, and we'll see it in just a moment again. What matters most to Jesus is that we believe, that we believe that he is the one God sent, the very son of God, that we believe that that what he accomplishes on the cross is actually fully sufficient for our salvation. We don't have to add anything to it. We can't add anything to it. To believe that it won't be our failures or our shortcomings or even our obedience that gets us in or keeps us out. But Christ's obedience, which is perfect in every way, the world says you can be good enough to save yourself. But Jesus says that's the way of darkness. That's the way of chaos. That's a lost way. But whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at verses 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. And then he says, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. Listen to this. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, well, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the very beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing out of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus says to his interlocutors, he says, I'm going away, and even though you're going, to, you're going to look for me, you're going to seek me, you're going to die in your sin. Now notice what he says. He says sin, not sins, sin singular. He says you will die in your sin. What sin is it that will ultimately condemn them? It would be their unbelief, the failure to recognize Jesus as God's son. The failure to to accept Jesus as the one God sent, the only true Redeemer and King, the one about whom all the Scriptures are written. It was their failure to believe. They don't see what separates Jesus from them. He is from above, the perfect one sent from the Father. They are from below. They are broken sinners in need of a Savior, but they don't see it. And their response to me is tragic. That warning that Jesus says to them, they're going to die, it doesn't even phase them. They're stuck on the fact that Jesus has said to them he's going to go somewhere that they can't go. Really what they're concerned about is Jesus has told them they can't do something. They say, how dare he say that we can't do something? We can go wherever he goes. We can do whatever he does. Their self-righteousness, frankly, is damning. They say sarcastically, well, what's he going to do? Going to kill himself? And then Jesus explains to them that unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. One theologian writes, this time, Jesus' word for their problem is plural, sins, representing multiple refusals of trust, multiplied mistrust, persistence in the primal sin, the primal sin being that of unbelief. They won't believe. 
And because of their unbelief, they would never trust in the one whose death was sufficient for their sins. Jesus says, it won't be until you have lifted up the Son of Man that you know I am He, and that I do nothing except what my Father has taught me. Jesus is not saying on the cross, you religious people will believe on me. He's not saying, oh, when you see me up there, dying, bearing the brunt, taking the full wrath of God, then you'll believe. What he's saying is the cross is the event that most powerfully validates Jesus' claim to be God's representative. Because on the cross, the lifted up Christ reveals to us who God truly is. And in that event, Jesus speaks for God most arrestingly, most powerfully, most beautifully. In other words, do you want to know what God is like? You look to the cross. You want to know how much God loves the world? Look to the cross. You want to know if, if, if your sins can be forgiven? Do you want to know if Jesus' sacrifice was enough for your sins, even the ones you thought were unforgivable? Look to the cross where God's full wrath was poured out on His perfect Son so that you and I could be spared from it. So that you and I could be completely and totally forgiven of every sin we've ever committed. It is the failure to believe in spite of this awesome display that will lead to eternal condemnation for those who will not receive this Jesus. And it's even, get this, it's even the failure to consistently believe in the completeness of Jesus' cross work. It's the failure to consistently believe as Christians that will steal our joy, that will lead to this never-ending burden to measure up, that will lead to this impossible weight of trying to be good enough. I was thinking the other day, I've become fairly convinced that to-do list Christianity, performances, and this notion that God will think kindly of me if I just do all the right things and never fall short, this idea that, that my obedience is the key to securing God's good favor is actually perhaps the most crushing burden of the Christian community. I've talked to so many people, so many people who, who though they would never articulate it, they're working so hard because they think if I can just do enough, God will finally love me. If I can just do that one more thing, then God will receive me. I will earn God's favor. I'll pay God back for what he's done or whatever it is. If I can just do one more thing, I can remain in his good graces. And what happens is they're worn out, exhausted, joyless, downright mad, Mad at God because they'd say, why, why should this bad thing be happening to me? Look at all the good things I've done. I've surely done enough so that you would do good for me. So some tragedy happens. And they say, this is not right, God. I've been at church for 49 out of the last 52 Sundays. I've gotten more patient. I'm improving in all these areas. I'm doing all of those things. This is not right that you should do this to me. So what happens is under the burden of this to-do Christianity, they become mad at everyone else and mad at God. Overwhelmed with guilt. Plus they have the hardest time actually putting on humility or admitting that they're wrong because this, in their minds, may jeopardize their standing with God. I can't actually admit 
to anyone that I'm wrong, what will other people think of me? What will God think of me? If I actually say, I blew it, I was wrong, I failed, I'm sorry. It's so easy for us to get into that mindset that if I just do enough, I can assure that God will bless me. And even more so, if good things happen, for us to believe, oh, that's got to be because I've been living right. Even my, my, my oldest son, who, as you know, is a senior at Wheaton College, he, the other day he, he was talking to him on the phone and he said, I had this really good day. He, he works as a server um, at this real sort of hip uh, millennial restaurant and everything is, uh, everything is like sleek and metal and, you know, it's just this very cool place. And so he calls me and said, Dad, I, I made $250 in tips tonight. He said, I was just blown away. Like at one, at one time someone left him a $100 tip. So I've had just, just great experience. I've had a great, I did well on my test. He said, you know what I, keep, what I keep thinking? I keep thinking, you know what? This must be because I've been really good for God lately. He said, I, I, it's so hard. I just have to go back and correct that thinking. I know that I'm getting these things because God is a gracious God. Not because I've done something. I know I didn't get a whopping tip because, you know what? I got out of bed early and I did my devos this morning. But that's the way he said I'm inclined. That's the way I'm inclined to think. It's so easy for us to believe that it's all riding on us. And if we do enough, yes, we can be assured of God's blessing. And if we have a bad day, we need to just brace ourselves. Because it's coming. We don't know when or how, but it's coming. We live by this code of self-righteousness. I must be right. I must preserve this pretense of perfection. But this is exhausting, isn't it? This is the consequence of wandering into darkness rather than following the light of the world who gives light. In the darkness, there's only one message. You must do more. That's the message in the darkness. You must do more. What you have done is not enough. If you are to receive God's approval, there's still a lot riding on you. But the light of the world the one who brings life, he brings a different message. His message is not you must do more. His message is it's done. It's already done. His message is not there's more riding on you. His message is it is finished. That's the message of the light. Speaking of light, God sees believers through the prism now of the cross. Our sins and failures are hidden by the blood of Jesus. The spectacular failures and the everyday failures. We are robed by Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at the Christian, he sees Jesus. And because when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, that means he approves of us. He accepts us. He loves us in a way that's unwavering. We don't have to do anything to secure his blessing. Our, his blessing is ours in Christ. The world's way of thinking, the mindset of those who are in darkness is, I know I can do this. I can pay for my sins. I can do enough. Those who are led to the light say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, which is not a statement of ongoing debt, but the recognition everything I have belongs to him, even and especially my righteousness. And because of that, there is no claim on my life that he cannot make. Everything I have is his. Everything I do is because of his grace. And everything is mine. 
because of the perfect, active, passive obedience of the one who died and rose again. The one who now intercedes for us at the Father. The one who's praying for us even now. It's all ours because of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this meaningful and deep passage of Scripture. Lord, forgive us for the times when we, we, we're so inclined to believe. This is really, of course I've been brought in by faith, but the rest of it's on me. Father, will you give us the grace this morning to believe in the full, fully complete, fully sufficient payment that Jesus Christ made. When we sing together, Jesus paid it all. Will you give us the grace to believe it by your Spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.